Essig. I work at CAA. I'm on Promoter 101. Welcome back. Monday, February 4th. We're here for episode 122 of Promoter 101. It's going on again and again and again, Dan. It's like a fine Chablis that just never stops. I like Chablis. Are you drinking a lot of Chablis these days, Dan? I'm actually starting to drink wine. Your partner has slowly crept it into my like palate and I can now handle a little bit of that vinegary shit. <laughs> Well, we can find you some decent ones in our travels here together in the next couple of weeks. I've stopped mixing my reds and whites. Not so much because I didn't think that was funny to do anymore, but I was pretty sure David was going to beat the living crap out of me. That sounds about right. I'm pretty sure that's not how you make rosé, Dan. Just mix a little white and red together. Last time I did that, it was like a $250 bottle and a $500 bottle. And it was just like the looks on Andrea and Britt's face was not great. <laughs> Although Zinc and Hill thought it was hilarious. I would absolutely imagine Brian Hill and your business partner also having a good laugh about that among the horrid shock on the faces of David Brits and Andrea Johnson. Don't do it again, <laughs> which is clearly <laughs> the kind of backup I need to do it again. But I haven't since then because he took that very seriously and I assaulted the grapes is what it came down to. <laughs> anyway, hey, this episode, we've got Seth Molaski kibitzing about his career and the business in general. Later on in the podcast, joined by singer-songwriter, coach to the stars, a war story from Mr. Larry Butler. Hey everyone, this is Cindy Lynott, Kira Finkenberg, Patty Ann Tarleton, Whitney Bond, Amy Miller, John Holiday, Marcy Allen, Paula Palazzo, Becca Leifer, and you're listening to Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. And I'm on Promoter 101. The rumors are true, Dan. Promoter 101 is everywhere. We are. I bet we're even being played on the device that you're listening to us right now, because that's pretty much how you're hearing us. Yeah, but there's other places, Dan. There are. You want me to say them? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, you should. Yeah, there's a list here that you wrote that we should say so people know where to get it in case they're confused as to what app it is open on their phone they're already listening to it on. You know, I think it's important. SoundCloud's like always been our go-to and we're super loyal to them. And then Spreaker and then the iTunes thing where most people listen to us. And then Spotify, so you can listen to us on your desk and at the go. And then iHeart has us too because, you know, they're not out of business yet, even though they're like basically bankrupt. And then YouTube has us. So that's a great way to like find us if you're a millennial girl. And then Google Music. So like we're kind of everywhere. That's the truth. If you're making a trek across the pond from the States to the International Live Music Conference, that's ILMC. It's coming up March 5th through the 8th. Steiny's going to have the honors of chairing, that's proper English for moderating, the agents panel this year. Some confirmed guests include K2's Sharon Richardson and X-Ray's Josh Javro. Dan, I heard a rumor that this is going to be your only conference appearance in 2019. However, will you survive? Uh, it's true. I feel like uh, it's time to let other people speak. So uh, the only place you're going to be able to hear me speak this year publicly is if you cross the pond and go to London. Otherwise, you're just going to have to, you know, tune in twice a week and hear me on this podcast. But besides that one public appearance and like twice a week, every week for the rest of the year, I'm not speaking at all. 
That's true, Dan. The microphone is a little bit broader just having this weekly outlet to put that out there. But if you're at ILMC, if you've not planned on attending the conference, you should definitely check it out. ILMC.com. Great conference happening with some of the best and brightest from outside the U.S., every year in London. This year, it's its 31st edition of that particular conference, and Dan hopes to see you there. It's like basically being in every Bond villain movie ever, except you realize these guys are sweethearts. They're not the dicks the movies make them out to be. That is the truth. If you do the social media thing, you're more than welcome to follow us. We're everywhere, Twitter, Instagram, the like. I'm at W. Luke Pierce. Dan's at the Jew, and the show is at Promoters 101. That's Promoters, plural, 101. If you've got something to say to us, we don't give a fuck. That's not true. That is not true. Well, then what do they do? We might tweet back at you that we disagree or block you. <laughs> that reminds me of another story that we're not going to tell. Anyway, you can email us at Steiny at Promoter101.net. We're ready to listen to you. Larry Maggot, Larry Maggot Entertainment Group, Promoter 101. We have a preview of Polestar Live and here joining us, Oakview's own Ray Waddell. Ray, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be here. So you guys are just announcing things left and right. It seems like we are just days away from what could be one of the better conferences of all time. There's a lot of reasons to be there. Really pleased with the program we've put together. Last year we had Garth Brooks and ADQ from Apple and Mark Cuban and John Bon Jovi and, of course, you and Michael Rapino. So we, people wondered how we could top it or if we could top it. And we're certainly very excited about what we're going to deliver next week. Well, how are you going to top it? What's in the works? You know, we got funk legend George Clinton supposed to be embarking on his last tour this year, along with the other end of the spectrum. We have uh, rising R&B superstar Khalid, who is going to be giving us a keynote case study Q&A with his manager, Courtney Stewart, and to be interviewed by Gail Mitchell from Billboard. And then we've got a group of touring musicians for a session called uh, I'm With a Band, and it has some of the most experienced and talented touring musicians out there and playing with some of the biggest bands. So we thrilled about that. And then uh, most recently we announced that Dave Grohl would come and do an interview with the guy you interviewed last year, Michael Rapino. So it's called The Conversation and it should be uber cool. We're stoked about it. So how does that work? I mean, you've got one of those with Louis Messina too and Arthur Fogel where they're having a conversation together. Do they interview each other? Is it just a discussion or who's interviewing who? How does that work? In the case of Dave Grohl and Michael Rapino, I think it's a case of a mutual admiration society. They see a lot of parallels between their two careers and, and how they're broadening their horizons and going into other areas. They wanted to do it. They wanted to have that discussion. So we're billing it as the conversation, and we expect that's what it'll be. So it's the two of them chatting, just asking each other things and just going down that path together, whatever it will be live, huh? Yeah, just two guys hanging out for that part of their life. Well, I feel a little cheated on by Rapino, but, you know, I can't wait to see it. So uh, I guess we'll have to forgive him because that, that just sounds like a good time. That should be interesting. And then we got our, our Rainmaker series that have uh, executives we feel like are impacting the business as we go forward. We're kind of like in this position where we're looking forward and looking back because it is the 30th anniversary of the Polestar Awards. And there should be some cool things there. I mean, Nikki Six is going to do an interview with Alyssa Pollock from iHeart. God knows what they'll talk about, but I know I want to hear it. 
it's going to be a fun event. 30 years is a long time to last in this business for anything, whether it's a career or a, an event. Here we are. I, it's a big space, but I'm pretty sure we're going to sell it out. So I would suggest people go ahead and register. Make sure you're there because it's really feel like we got a can't miss event. If you're in this business, you need to be there. There's a lot of reasons to be there. Louie and Arthur's one of them. Dave and Michael's another of them. All right. Well, Polestar.live is where you register for that right now. You can see George Clinton. You can see Rapino taking on Grohl. And you can see Louie with Arthur and so many more things. It's Polestar Live 2019. Thank you so much, Ray Waddell, for joining us on Promoter 101. Thanks, guys. It's always fun. Jamie Loeb from Nederlander Concerts, Promoter 101. There's no better way, Dan. This is my favorite part of the podcast. We just get to say a bunch of names celebrating some birthdays this week, February 5th, 11, 2019. Tuesday the 5th, the great and honorable Harvey Cohen from the great north up there in Canada. And Charles Doris, one of the better Christian music agents I've ever had the pleasure of dealing with. Wednesday the 6th, wishing a happy birthday to the man from Vancouver, Matt Gibbons. Also, Darren Price, Jeff Hill, Tim Savona, Jason Fellers, and Brett Dowling. Thursday, Will Anderson, Greg Schmally, Matt King, Adam Radler, and Sam Elkin. Hey, there's a posse if I ever heard one myself. It's a good day of birthdays there. On Friday the 8th, wishing happy birthday to Thomas Linden. Saturday the 9th, Marty Wench, Adam Genovician, Chaz Hammond, and Sid Greenfag. On Sunday the 10th, wishing happy birthday to Ben Minch Turlow and Jeff Marsha. And Monday, the 11th, Shlomo Lippitz. We love some Shlomo here. Happy birthday to y'all from the gang at Promoter 101. Call your mother. Hey, this is Brian O'Connell with Live Nation, and we are on Promoter 101. Up next, we're joined by author, performance coach, Mr. Larry Butler with a war story. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, please welcome back to the war stories, defending heavyweight champion of the world with more defenses than anyone, Mr. Larry Butler. Welcome back to the podcast, sir. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much. Glad to be back. Have a story for you. Something like you never heard before. Talk is cheap, motherfucker. Bring it. In the late 70s, Warner Brothers Records signed a distribution deal with Chris Blackwell's Island Records. By the early 80s, after the relative success and major cred of both Bob Marley and U2, Moe and Lenny took Chris at his word, Chris Blackwell, that the next big thing was going to be a Japanese art rock band called Plastics. The band was, as they say, of course, big in Japan, but both like Talking Heads and B-52s had already cited the Plastics influence on their own brand of quirky rock. So there was cred involved and Chris Blackwell say so. And so here they come. The Plastics were brought over to the U.S. for a performance and promo tour of a like a dozen early adopter markets like L.A., San Francisco, Denver, Minneapolis, Chicago. You get the picture. Building the hipsters. <laughs> It gets hipper as you go east, I guess. As the head guy at Warner's Artist Relations Field Force, it was my job to escort the band around to make sure they were properly introduced to the Warner people, the WIA people, the media, radio, retail, and ultimately, I guess, a curious audience. And it all went remarkably well with only one small glitch. Our first meeting was very cordial, although it became obvious that the band members' facility with the English language was limited at best. And my Japanese was, shall we say, rusty at best. A vision of you in a kimono right now is coming out, though, which I think is awesome. And also a little rusty. <laughs> Me in a kimono. I wish I had a photo. So 
what to do. At first, we resorted to Japanese-English dictionaries, but it isn't working. We can't carry on a conversation because we're just looking up words. Then, in a serendipitous exchange of our background, somehow, it was discovered that the girl lead singer and I both had studied French in high school. So we started to relate everything back and forth to each other in broken French. And it was the best we could do at the spur of the moment. So went back to the bookstore and got Petit LaRousse dictionaries in English and Japanese. And we embarked on one of the weirdest promo tours I'd ever encountered with a language barrier. We'd go to radio stations, see, which carried on for a while because there were three languages going on, or four if you count whatever it was dialect that DJ was using. It became adventuresome, of course, and downright funny. Eventually, I just pretend I knew what she was saying, and I would just answer the question, you know, in the most expedient manner, as if I understood completely what it was she was coming back with. And the same with press interviews. Phoners were a breeze because I could get on the phone and just kind of pretend I was talking to her, and I just made it up as it went along. Because actually, when you do these interviews, Dan, as you know, there's only three questions. Where have you been? Why are you here? Where are you going next? That's it. So it was in the good spirit of just expediency. I get it. Along the way, the band did pick up some English, you know, stuff like sound check. And I did master a couple of Japanese phrases. The two most frequent, <laughs> if I can remember how to say them. The first one was, iso ide kurasai, which I think means let's go or hurry up. And then there was chotomata kurasai, which means slow down or wait a minute. But the most interesting part and the best part was the fact that whatever town we went into, I booked us into the best Japanese restaurants and I would let the band order stuff that was not on the menu. And I have no idea what I was eating, but it was wonderful. And I didn't want to ask, actually. But about halfway into the tour, the lead singer came to me in the most considerate, private way possible, asked very nicely and pointed out that the band gets great Japanese food back home. They don't particularly need it here. What they really wanted to do was to immerse themselves into real American food. Not great American food, but real American food. So the balance of the excursion was spent in Denny's, McDonald's, Colonel Sanders, Baskin Robbins. You get the drift. They had the time of their lives. They wanted fast food and they wanted their experience. We ate at every American chain restaurant there is. One in Rome, right? One in Rome. And I got I got it. It was like, oh, my God, of course. Yeah, we'll do that. It'll be fun. It'll be a hell of a lot cheaper, too. Well, hey, nobody experiences life on the road like you did, Larry. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom and your genius. Hey, if you want to catch up with Larry Butler, you can follow him online. And, of course, check out his book, which is awesome if you're trying to get in the business as a singer-songwriter, making it happen in our business. Thanks so much, Larry. My pleasure, Dan. Next time. Bye. Great to have Larry back on the show this week. He has the best war stories. The best war stories. We have the best war stories. <laughs> Brain Roundtree. I work at WME and I'm on Promoter 101. You really think we're going to forget to announce the Promoter 101 badass of the week? Well, of course we're not. It's ICM's own Adam Genovizian just killing it in the comedy space right now, making him this week's Promoter 101 Badass of the week. Well done, Adam. Much deserved congratulations to one of the youngest partners at ICM. Hi, it's Paola Palazzo from Live Nation Concerts Canada on Promoter 101. In our feature interview this week, we're joined by Paradigm Seth Molaski. He's here to talk about his history, working his way up to head of the performing arts. 
one of the biggest concerts agencies in the world. I put the word kibitz in the script and you didn't read it. Proving you just got to be good Jewish boy to use the word kibitz, huh, Luke? You used kibitzing earlier in the podcast. And then see, I struggled to even say the word correctly there. So I wasn't about to even attempt that, nor did I want to be repetitive, Dan. So I think this is better for everybody. I think you could bring the Yiddish, maybe like spatula. Could you handle that? I can handle spatula. Yeah, I got that one. Oy vey. <laughs> From the lovely New York City, New York, coming to you with the one and only Seth Malaski from the beautiful Paradigm Agency. Seth, welcome to Promoter 101. Thank you, Dan. I've been thrilled with the idea of coming here. It's a while in the making, and I'm happy to be here. Seth, we've been friends for... I actually remember the night we met. As do I. It was the final WAD dinner in Albuquerque. And there's some country hoedown kind of now, dinner How many thing. years? What are we talking? This has got to be 15 years ago? At maybe, least. Maybe more. Yeah. Yeah. So Matt Chin decides he wants to go to a casino. Rick Farrell's in. China Schwan is in. Andrea Johnson is in. I'm going. And Andrea pulls you into a car, too, that is only set up to handle three adults. And there's photographic alone. memorial evidence of this as oh, well. Yeah, it's a great picture. Yeah, yes. I love reposting that. AJ hates it. But this is a car that would only fit normally Rick Farrell and maybe me. But we're all scrunched into this thing, driving out to this desert casino. And this is the night I met you for the first I time. I remember. Now, do you remember... At that point, I didn't think you liked me. I didn't. You didn't like me. Well, you didn't know me. So, how, I mean, how could you not like me? I didn't like you. Because you were intimidated? Be, no, I, I understand. I get that. I didn't like the idea of having to have that many people in the car. And I didn't like the extra body in the car. But what a lovely body. I mean, this is so much personality over here. AJ swore I would grow to love you. And it had nothing to do with you being a good guy or not. You could have been the Pope. No, I'm like, well, you know, I could not have been the Pope. But actually, did you know there were two Jewish Popes? I did not know it. Tell us more. My understanding is that some of the Jewish dynasties bought in to make their sons popes. They would transition. What centuries are we talking about uh, here? Early days, okay, early okay. days, before malls. Okay. Early days. So they would buy in huge donations of their dynasty to the Catholic Church, and then the kid would grow up and become pope because they helped finance the church. Aha. Uh -huh. Back to you not liking me. <laughs> let, let me get comfortable. Just kind of <laughs> this is good. This is good. I'm glad we don't do video. <laughs> yeah, everyone is. So here's the thing. Yeah, it didn't matter who you were at that point. It was just we were in a hatchback that should have held three people and we were all squeezing like sardines. I was just pissed off the extra person. I, I had, didn't dislike I, you. I, I do remember I won money. I taught Chin how to play craps. And we had a fantastic time. We did. And you and me wound up drinking late into that night. Shockingly. And the first of many times. So it wasn't that I disliked you. I just liked the idea of the extra body yeah. and what shouldn't have fit. We ended that night as quality friends. Of course. Of course. Of course. But if I was a dick to you, I believe that that probably came off. Yeah. I don't even remember what it was so long ago. I can't remember what it was. But I do remember maybe saying it to AJ being like, I don't know. I don't think Steiny likes me. We've never had a real conversation, but I get a weird vibe. And she was like, yeah, probably. But it'll all work out. <laughs> There's so many levels. I'm like an onion. Ogres are like onions. We're not like cake. You make everyone cry. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about you. We've known each other for a long time to the point where we've produced tours together and we've gotten to some random one-off stuff. And more importantly, we've been amazing social roundtables for each other where it's like, do you know this person? Do you know that person? And it's one of those things where I can call you up and say, hey, 
I want to have a relationship with that person. Can you send an email? And vice versa. And these great dinners that you host at the arts conferences or the dinners that I host. And we bring each other and we meet people through the round tables. But it's been this very given relationship where we've both been able to help each other out by introducing each other to other parts of the business. When I wanted to get deeper into the arts world, you helped me with that. When you wanted to become a country music agent, I helped you with that. <laughs> you know, there's not enough Jews in country, Seth. They're just not. Screaming for more. Yeah. Seth Seki Malaski. Mm. I find that we've had a very good relationship, not only as friends, but we've been able to help each other. And, you know, usually when it didn't gain the other one anything, it's just, okay, sure, whatever you need. It doesn't cost me anything. What the fuck? You know, I find that what are we all but facilitators and that some of my favorite people are people who won't think twice about lending a helping hand. I mean, obviously, all the meals we've had together, all the people you've introduced me to. A great example, a dear friend of both of ours is Rick Farrell. I remember when I first started at ICM Artists, this is now 16 years ago, 17 years ago, and I'm talking to Rick about what I'm trying to do. I was booking the Midwest, and he just starts sending me so much information that he had and like he had put together and spreadsheets of people and was just such an open door with all of his relationships. And I was like, well, this is what people are supposed to be like. So I've always tried to emulate that as well. Everyone should know each other. Everyone should get along. It's why can't we all get along? Why can't we all just get along? Exactly. And what I've always liked best about our relationship is it's honest. I wanted to buy a tour and I thought I was the right promoter for the tour and I thought the tour was going to be huge. You called me and said, you probably are. We're going to sell it to a bigger promoter. And the RA said he might be able to do it, but if he doesn't, it's going to put him out of business. We don't want to put him out of business. The tour did great. And I was right, but I appreciated that you didn't tell me that they wanted a promoter that had better marketing or they want a promoter that had regional offices. You were very straight up about why you didn't deliver me what was probably a $4 million tour for the first leg. And I appreciated that it wasn't like my offer wasn't good enough. It was that there were the deep pockets of that particular company that bought the tour was there in case the tour went soft and you guys didn't want to bring me down. And I appreciated I was the logic. About that. Well, you know, you know, Dan, when all else fails, honesty is the best answer. No, I've always appreciated that. How many times have you said it on this podcast? We all talk about it. It's about relationships. It's about knowing people and just picking up a phone and having a conversation and taking that information and doing what you're going to do with it. But trying to get a step further, just like we were talking about before, about lessons that you're learning and just to be better at what you're doing, a better person, a better friend, a better colleague, a better husband, father, all that kind of stuff. Too beautiful. No, it, I thought you were going to go into song. <laughs> you don't pay enough. Got to talk to my agent. I've always found it interesting your way of doing things. And you get to work with some legendary acts. Now, over the course of our relationship, we've seen a bunch of our friends jump from these art agencies like Opus. Andrea, I think, was first, where she went from Opus to the agency group to run their arts department, which is really more the same acts, but having someone that knew how to speak to the performing arts centers. And then you did a very similar thing with Paradigm. In June, it'll be 11 years that I did that, if you can believe that. So yeah, I left Opus 3 artists, which had been ICM artists, when, well, first, Eric Amata 
told Eddie Mike Cohn that he should reach out to me. Fast we, Eddie we, Mike yeah, Cohn. Fast Eddie. So Eddie called me up and said, let's have lunch. And I told him. I think he I, said, I, let's do lunch. I, I remember saying, I have lunch every day. I'd love to have lunch with you. And we went and had lunch together. By the way, if you don't know who Eddie Mike Cohn is, Google him. Yeah, holy I mean, shit. Eddie Mike Cohn is the glue that holds us all together. So great. He had been at Paradigm for about a year. Fred and Dan had brought him in to really oversee For personal Bill Lander, Dan Weiner. Th- yeah, thank you. Uh, to oversee personal appearances and casinos in, in New York. And obviously Marty and Larry and Johnny, they were doing their thing in New York as well. They Johnny. A year after that. Adelman, Larry Webman, Marty sorry, Diamond. Thank we, you. Yes, we radio, radio. Podcast, I apologize. I'll, I'll get that. Right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Right. And I met with Eddie and with, within a lunch, he'll tell you, I'm sure he has told you, he said, trust me, let's do this. So I uh, went to go work for Eddie and got to go meet Dan Weiner and Fred Bolander and Chip Hooper and, and moved over to Paradigm 11 years ago. And just like you're saying, and I remember when I did that, I freaked out at one moment and the first person I called was Andrea Johnson because she had done that move probably two or three years ago. And I hadn't been looking to make a move, but I also felt, I'm borrowing a quote here, that I was selling buggy whips in an automobile age at an arts agency that was just doing that. And my interests were- Yeah, you wanted a bigger career. Yeah, and it was a great opportunity. I mean, it was really, initially, I didn't bring over any RA clients. It was just focusing on Dan Weiner and Fred Bolander and working with Linson Gary and all their clients from the- and They had so many great AAA modern rock acts that like were middle of the road. They needed somebody doing that. Seems like it's such a given now. It was a new world. It, it was a new world. I mean, it was just breaking into that. And I remember too, at that time, for some of those acts that it's all they do right now or the majority of what they do, I remember saying, oh, for this artist would do great in performing arts centers. I was like, oh no, they're not going to want to do that. They feel like how they felt casinos were maybe 10 years prior. And I just, because I'm ornery, put together a run of, oh, I hear eight theaters, 2,500 cap theaters over 11, 12 dates. And, you know, the artists I'm thinking about took it and everything blew out. Suddenly it was like, oh, these theaters are beautiful. These buyers want to be doing this. Why aren't we doing more of these art centers? And that was kind of the entree. And then since then it's grown and whole departments grown and we've kind of shipped a little bit, still having one foot in the arts world and one foot in, in a hard ticket world. And that's why we talk a lot. It's interesting. You get to deal with some really cool acts. Like, I love that you got to do Roger Daltrey this year. I'm a huge Hugh fan. How awesome is well, that? Well, that was great. I mean, that was, you know, Ron Kaplan, thanks to him and the partnership we made with Monterey International becoming a part of Paradigm. Ron asked me to help with this Roger Daltrey symphony tour doing Tommy with, you know, members of the Who Band. And that was phenomenal. That was pretty exciting. Don't spin the mics, though. No, you do spin the mics. Actually, one of the crazy things is we have to explain to orchestras the conductor can't be center stage, has to be stage left because Roger's going to spin his mic. And if the conductor's right there, he's, he's going to clunk in the back out. of his head. Yeah. But those shows did great. Roger is is such an amazing artist, a, a legend. Yeah. And you have to say to the conductors, don't get fooled again. Yeah. <laughs> you rep Herbie Hancock. Mm-hmm. How fucking cool is that? That just makes you a cooler person automatically. Well, and I'll tell you what, what's exciting about that. And you probably don't know this is I represent Herbie Hancock because of Jonathan Levine. So I had been at Paradigm. By the way, the people in the note call him JL. JL. Well, you said full names. Not for that. I mean, for fuck's sake, I had been at at Paradigm for maybe a year and JL calls and he says, hey. Jonathan Levine. I heard from Herbie's <laughs> attorney that, you know, they're, they're maybe thinking of making a change. He's like, I'm swamped doing X, Y, and Z. Are you interested? I'm like, of course I'm interested. So it was that early support from people like JL, obviously Dan and Fred and Chip and Marty, who saw what I was doing and, and wanted to support that. So yeah, Herbie Hancock for many years now. He's uh, amazing. When you went to Paradigm, they were a literary agency that just opened up this music agency that bought 
Little Big Man and a couple other things. They had a couple pieces. They weren't the international mega company that they are with Dakotas and what have you. Because they've been on a buying spree like mad since you've been there. That company has grown leaps and bounds. Windish and AM only. And like it just went on forever. Like they just keep getting fucking bigger. So had you known when you took this job that you were going to go from being a really solid agency financially back to one of the biggest agencies in the world, your top six agency now worldwide. That's amazing. How does that international global presence help your business when you're trying to sign X? I mean, tremendously, obviously, you know, can you uh, go into a little more detail than tremendously? (laughs) Well, to be able to have boots on the ground throughout the world and really be able to talk to artists and have a kind of global footprint, it can be really powerful. I mean, you know this, and we've now been talking about the people in North America, but going to Canada and Coda X-Ray and throughout adds the next level that we're looking for. Are you starting to have an international presence? Are you doing more stuff internationally? Well, sure. A number of artists that I work on and with the team, you know, we partner with Coda or with X-Ray on. You know, we still do a lot of things in Asia, in South America, in Australia. I find strange signs and act in the UK and they want American representation. Is it possible that the, you could get a shot at that because you're part of Paradigm? Well, of course. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the power of being in a big company is communication and talking to other people. I mean, if you want to just do your own thing, go put up a shingle and do your own thing. But what's exciting about a paradigm and the growth you're talking about is we can all communicate with each other and say, hey, I'm working on this artist. I've signed this artist. This person is maybe going to break in this territory, or that territory. And you've got colleagues in those territories to talk with them about. And who knows what might happen, but it at least allows for that conversation to happen early. So with the future in mind, what do you want to be doing? Do you want to continue to oversee the arts? Do you want to continue to be an RA? Do you want to do all things for all people? I think the thing that excites me the most about what I'm doing and we're doing is, is looking for the next exciting thing. I mean, you know what we're doing in the hologram world with base hologram. Some of the projects that we're working on right now, I think is a future of what audiences are looking for. We talk a lot about it. I've already kind of shifted. And we should mention you had the Roy Orbison hologram tour that just finished up. Yeah, the first Maria Collis hologram tour and, and a number of hologram tours coming out in 19 and, and looking at 20. Is it easier to deal with holograms than actual people? Well, they don't mess up the green room and uh, they always show up on time. But I think that's exciting. We talk about the artists that IRA, the artists I work on. It's such a disparate group of artists. And that's one of the things I love about it. It's it's to be able to jump between Herbie Hancock to India Ari to Chris Thiele to Bobby McFerrin to Adina Menzel. It's really exciting. For me, as you talk about the future, it's how do you find those next exciting artists and projects that people want. We talk about the idea of date night. People want a different date night. I want a different, you know, you, you go out with a load. You want to, oh, we're, we're going to go on. Let's have a different type of date night. And that's where holograms can come in. That's where new experiential, you know, theatrical events can come in. And I, th- I think that's a big, exciting part of the future. Just doing new things keeps it interesting. You've got this international presence as an agency. You've got this great credibility as a company and you've got these great relationships in our office that have built amazing relationships around the industry. You speak theater, you seek performing arts center presenter, which is its own language. And you know what? They're a little snooty, as they would say in Ferris Bueller, snooty, snooty. Not all performing arts centers, but some of them do have a little bit of a stick up their ass. And other of them are super hip, but you've got to be able to understand how to book all of these rooms and understand the concept of the brochure and the grants and the sponsorships and be able to explain that to the artists 
opposed to the fan club pre-sale that they normally do for a hard ticket club show, how that works when you're on series. And that's a whole different land that you have to prep artists for. I, you know, I don't think about it as snooty so much as I think a lot of what they're buying are shows that might not ever make money, that won't ever make money. So for them, it's a buyer's market because they're subsidizing those shows as opposed to a hard ticket show you're going to sell to a promoter oftentimes it's a seller's market. You know what I'm saying? So I think the snootiness comes that you're saying comes from that mentality switch. Do you, do you agree? I mean, well, here's the thing. So we go to these conferences, right? Like we're at APAP, right? And they have showcases. And you and me have talked about this before. I won't go to a showcase. If I fall in love with an act, I want to work with them. I don't want to see them live. If we're doing the show, I'll stumble out. I want to see their numbers first because I'll buy a ticket if I like them. If I'm going to present them, I want to know the numbers are there. Seeing an act and discovering them and bringing arts to a community has nothing to do with making money for a lot of nonprofits. Well, that's, what, that's what I'm trying to say. It is the mandate for nonprofits. And look, I think a lot of this is changing. I think the idea of brochures, I think all this stuff that you and I could talk about the schism 10 years ago has changed a lot in the past 10 years. Cool. And don't get me wrong, because I love music. I'm a music fan and I get to present what I think is the best music bands in the world. To go see a showcase, though, and fall in love with the band and buy them because you like them and not look at any of the data and research based on what the value of the act is, is a whole different idea of programming. It is. We're talking about a model that I think is going away a little bit, but it, there's still vestiges of it. And it's the idea of the curator, the arts curator for a community that's trying to deliver something. And it's a different mandate than making money. It's, it's a mandate of bringing some different types of culture or whatever it is to the university, to the community. And it is solely a function of the artist and the connection with the community and the audience. It's not a function of the box office. So I get in trouble when I'm in the performing arts center rooms and we're talking business with them because I don't believe that nonprofits need to be run like they need to lose money. I believe you can run a nonprofit very much like a business. You can be successful at producing shows without losing money just because you have grants and an idea to do doesn't mean you have to lose money doing it. I truly believe that. And I think it pisses off a lot of people that do arts. So I say to them, okay, you're doing 33% business on dance over three weeks of dance in a year. Why not do two weeks of dance? Because I believe that most of those people that are going to dance over the three weeks will go to two weeks and you'll be at 60% over two weeks instead of 33% over three weeks. And it, your, your overhaul will go yeah, way I down. I don't disagree with you, but it becomes, I think, in their minds, that slippery slope of why don't you just do one week and, and sell the sucker out and suddenly... And I put, like that. I know you do, but then suddenly you're not really offering that throughout the year to your community. And, and I hear what you're saying. I think there's a way to thread that needle, but I don't know that I fully agree that you can do it... That's because you'd rather the mission three weeks. Yeah, well, maybe. And also, maybe that's what's important for the community, even though it is only 40% in the house. I don't book any dance anymore, but thank you. But Are you strangely attracted to me as I'm scrolling out like this? There's nothing strange about my attraction to <laughs> <laughs> you as you lie on the couch. <laughs> hey, uh, but you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, Just two Jews, nothing yeah, going on here. I'm not sure you're right that it can completely coexist, that there is something about putting together a season that's arts-based. You have me defending something that I'm not sure I fully believe in. I don't know that I want to defend it, but I can't help argue with you because well, that's my nature. But I think that sometimes there's a wastefulness to some of the nonprofits. Ah, so, but it's a wastefulness from your definition of waste. It's money. And I guess that take money out of the equation. And if what you're trying to do is be the cultural beacon for a community and money isn't so an issue, hard. 
then suddenly it's not wasteful if you have a different definition of what you're trying to create. Obviously, I'm an agent. You can't take the money out of it completely. But I guess what I'm saying is your mission or mandate around shows is different than a cultural organization. Sure. My fiduciary responsibility or stockholders. Yeah, of, but, uh, now, I have to now, make well, now you do. Yes. Yeah, right? Yes, now you do. That's relatively so new, to, but still. I have to, while producing the arts to the best of my ability for the artist and the fan, I need to not be wasteful and do the best well, thing for our that, stockholders. That's where I live. I, I like to think of my department at Paradigm is one foot in the arts world and one foot in a hard ticket world. You can sell tickets, but it's also the very, very best of programming. So I'm under the impression that you switched over to Paradigm because they booked fish. <laughs> no, but I could Didn't see that. Un- I could see that understanding. No, I'm I'm very lucky to get to go see a lot of fish concerts. But that was not the reason. Do you have any advice for the kids at home? I, you know, advice for the kids at home. The advice that I just tell myself is to keep learning things and having fun, enjoying what you're doing. And one thing I've always thought a lot about is as you keep doing one thing over and over, like the blinders. And you can't see this on radio, but the blinders close in, you know, like a horse blinders close in and you got to force yourself to open those up a little bit, I think. And that's something I always kind of push myself to do. There's my advice. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, the great Seth Malaski here on Promoter 101. Thank you, Dan. So much fun having Seth here. We have to bring him back, Luke. I suppose just not a third week in a row, Dan. we got to give the world a chance to miss him a little bit before we bring him back on here. We were supposed to have Seth on about a year ago, and due to flight delays, we missed our opportunity. Either we were going to drink or we were going to do the podcast, and I think everybody can understand we chose to drink, and there was no podcast, so everybody had to wait. So I feel really bad. It took us a year, but we did the lever. The great Seth Molaski. Finally on the podcast. So good. So much Jew in such a little space. Yes, indeed. Hey, it's Brian Penix with NS2 and ABI Management. I'm going to be on Promoter 101. The quote of the week comes to us from Robert Frost. It's a little bit of a uh, famous quote here. You kind of know that coming because Robert Frost is like a big deal. Two roads diverged in a wood. I look to take the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. See, I like it because you know it, but it still like gets at your soul. Pretty deep stuff, Dan, quoting Robert Frost. It's pretty bold selections by you there. I don't think anyone has heard that quote in quite some time. So I appreciate being so brave to share that, my friend. This is Karen from 10 Club Ticketing, and I'm on Promoter 101. Thank you to everybody who tuned into this podcast, episode 122 of Promoter 101 in the books. And we got to give a big thank you to Paradigm's Seth Molaski and author Larry Butler for joining us on this podcast. We hope you're digging the short and condensed bite-sized version of this. Great for your morning or afternoon commutes. And if you'd like it, let us know. We want to hear from you. You can write us, email us at steinypromoter101.net. We'll be back next Thursday at 5 o'clock Pacific Time, 8 o'clock on the East Coast. That's Eastern Standard Time for anyone from anyone from the Florida to the New York kind of range right there. Even up into like Burlington and shit. Burlington? You're going to go, Dan? I'm not. I'm just saying if you live in Burlington, you want to listen to us. 5 o'clock on the coast happens to be 8 o'clock on the Eastern Seaboard. And I'm, I'm doing the math for you. Back on Thursday, 5 o'clock, we're going to be our interview with Live Nation's Jeff Gordon, which we recorded last week live from the University of Arts in Philadelphia. Can't wait for the world more broadly to hear that. We'll also have a war story from Fate of Bookings, Eva Alexandra, which is going to be awesome. Looking forward to that. In the meantime, we're wishing you sold out shows for the week to come. We really are. So cheers to you. And uh, what was that other thing, Luke? Oh, 
Call your mother. Call your mother. <laughs> Goodbye. Harvey fucking leads here. You're on Promoter 101, and everything that you've heard in the past are lies and bullshit. Now you're going to hear the truth. Ooh. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.